Don't you just love baptisms? Unbelievable. I, I love the picture of little Emilio saying, God's got me, buddy. <laughs> Amen. Amen. What, what, a, what a great, great thing. I, I'm just so thrilled with how God is using our church and the lives that are being touched and changed. And, you know, <clears throat> part of the problem with being in leadership, it's a wonderful opportunity, but the Achilles heel of being in leadership is that you're looking forward and you're seeing where we ought to be and what we could be. And sometimes you're looking at the challenges, but you can take them out of context and forget about what God is doing. And it is just, just so wonderful to see how God is at work in changing the hearts and lives of people. And uh, the, best is, the best is yet yet to come. If you're visiting with us here at Fellowship, we're just really delighted that you've come by. And if there's any way that we can help you or encourage you or answer any of your questions, that's what we're here for. Uh, we're just a group of people that's taken pretty seriously this whole idea of being mature in Jesus. And we want to keep moving toward him. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, we would love for you to talk to some of our folks back here in the common or just get online with fbconline.org or give us a call. We'll, we'll, fill you, we'll fill you in. I want to thank you for your gifts, too. Uh, we, we need your gifts. This is a challenging time, uh, as is the case in so many churches, and we're trusting the Lord that he will just continue to meet our needs and so that we can see more people being baptized, coming to know the Lord Jesus, and to use us in the in a wonderful way. Well, let's bow together for a word of prayer, please. Father, we thank you for your love and presence. We thank you for what we've seen and seen already this morning, Lord, with um, the testimonies of uh, these brothers and sisters in Jesus. God, we pray that you'll sustain their commitment and that you would give them opportunities to let other people know lovingly of the hope of the Lord Jesus and God, I pray that you will work in our lives in such a way that we live authentic Christian lives. Not just the words that we say, but how we live and how we love each other. And God, I pray for this message today. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough one to give uh, because of the clarity of the text and um, the directness of which James speaks. And Father, we pray that you'll move us towards your heart. I pray, O oh God, that you'll move, remove any impediments in our lives and how we live and love one another and other people so that people can see the hope and the love of the Lord Jesus in an attractive way. Thank you again for yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in James chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to get one this morning. We have some out on tables, and uh, if you can't do that or they're not enough, I want you to get close to the person sitting next to you. We uh, use our Bibles here if you're visiting with us here at Fellowship. We use our Bibles every Sunday, but this is one of these particular Sundays that I want you to follow very closely in the text. This is a uh, very direct message, and as I said in my prayer, it's a hard message to give, not because the content is difficult to understand. What makes it hard to give is because the content is so clear. And it speaks so directly to where we are in our moment in history. little context every Sunday, I've been saying this as we go through the James series, that the title of our series is Faith Works. And again, we're not talking about an ethereal faith or an intellectual faith only or a faith that's detached from our reality. James writes in very transformative ways. In other words, he says, faith does work. 
An authentic relationship with Christ and authentic faith in God will transform our lives. And so he deals with very practical issues and very practical stuff. And we're going to walk into one of those texts right now. Today I want to talk a little bit about the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. And I want you to look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I started to break this up into two parts, but I did not want to separate the thoughts. So I'm going to deal with both of, those, both of those paragraphs today. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read both of the paragraphs, but I will read the first seven verses because James clearly frames what he's talking about here. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you don't know where the book of James is, it's after the book of Hebrews and just before 1 Peter. If that doesn't help you, just look in the table of contents and that should help you. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold, gold ring <clears throat> and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I have a friend of mine who... uh, a number of years ago, became the CEO of a very prominent organization. Uh, this friend is a wonderful Christian and a very uh, effective and successful businessman. And uh, this is in another city in another state. And when he became the CEO of this organization, part of his package, part of the perks that he got, was a membership in a very uh, nice but exclusive country club. It was a good thing to have because he, he worked really hard and long hours and it was a great way to get away and he loves to play golf. Uh, so the food was good, the amenities were really great. And it was just wonderful for his family. Several months after he had been there on this new job, he was home one evening watching uh, the news. And then he heard something that got his attention. They were talking about a scandal or some little quote, Mark, against this guy who was running for the U.S. Senate. Well, what got his attention was is that that Mark against him had to do with his membership in the same country club. So he said he went to the TV and looked, and what the issue was was this. He didn't know this when, uh, um, you know, he accepted the perk, but the problem was this guy running for U.S. Senate was, running, was uh, going to represent this huge area that was very uh, multi-ethnic and that kind of thing. And, oh boy, what, what the problem was was that uh, this country club had as a policy that they did not receive Jewish people or African Americans as members. And this friend of mine who's a believer He didn't know anything about this, and I remember him telling me about it. He said, Crawford, 
It collided with my convictions. I wrestled with it for just a short time. But then I made my decision because it was inconsistent with what I felt about the nature of my walk with God and what I felt about people, and I withdrew my membership. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt marginalized? It's important to set this up before we get into this section of Scripture. Because what James is talking about is something that visits all of us. And something that in varying degrees, I guess I'm safe to say, all of us have been guilty of the sin of partiality. I just gave you a, quote, racial illustration, but it extends past that. And I want to ask you the question, how, how did you feel when you've been mar- marginalized? Or, 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 or let me ask it another way. Have you ever been treated like you were not good enough? You know how it feels? You know how it feels to be treated like you're not good enough? Maybe you were not pretty enough to be let in. Too skinny, too fat, blemishes, not the right hair color, not having hair. Uh, You thought it, I said it. Uh, (laughs) Or you don't have the kind of job that makes you acceptable. Embarrassed about where you work because people remind you, that's not not our demographic. That's not where we come from. That's not these folks. Or you you, you don't live in the right community to be a part of the group. Where do you live? I live in this. Ah, no, don't say that. Or not the right ethnicity to hang out with us. Or you didn't go to the right schools so you're denied access. I could add 25 or 30 others to these things. But it is amazing, and this is, this is what grabbed me this week. I thought I didn't wrestle with this, these things, but as I began studying the text, I had little ouch moments myself. Because this sin of partiality is woven into so much of the fabric of our culture and society. Whereas I don't struggle, obviously, with the racial stuff. I don't struggle with that. There are other areas in my life that I might struggle with. And James is is telling the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, look, 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 look. This shouldn't be a part of our mix. Now, admittedly, in this text, James specifically is talking about the sin of partiality as it diminishes and devalues the poor. There's an economic thing that he's talking about here. And I don't have a lot of time to set this up, but let me just say here that these Jews, Jewish believers who have been dispersed, um, were part of a cultural milieu during this time in which there was uh, strong lines between the haves and the have-nots. Slavery was huge back then, but the kind of slavery back then was not exactly the same kind of slavery that we know. If I could put quotes around it, it was a tad bit more humane. It had more to do with, 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 with the powerful and those who were dependent. It was sort of a working uh, employer-employee kind of thing, and this stuff was going on in the church, and people were very conscious of their economic status where they fit and where they didn't fit. And so James writes this letter to these Jewish believers who are scattered uh, uh, around Asia Minor, and he's saying, look, 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 
I want to speak to something very, very directly. Now, let me just bottom line this here in case I have to skip around a little bit. I think the heart thing that James is saying and saying to all of us, he's just putting it right out on the table and saying, let's be honest. It's tempting to cater to the rich because we hope to get something out of them. And it's tempting to avoid the poor because they embarrass us. That's the tone of these two paragraphs. And like I said, James just doesn't mince words. And as you read these two paragraphs, that's the sense you get. James say, look, it's tempting to cater to the rich because they can do something for you. But it's also tempting to shun and to back away and to devalue the poor. Why? Because they embarrass us. We don't want to be like them. And so, as you walk through this, James writes in contrasts. We've seen that already. And so it is here. One paragraph, he's saying, the first paragraph, he's really saying and underlying this whole ugly, persistent habit. That's verses 1 through 7. Is this ugly, persistent habit. But then verses 8 through 13, he talks about a new liberating law. He speaks to the ugly, persistent habit that's there in very direct terms. But then he gives us the solution in verses 8 through 13 when he talks about this new liberating law. To further help us to understand the flow of these first seven verses, I kind of think as I was reading through this and thinking about the structure of this text, that basically, although these questions are not stated, when you read verses one through seven, you're stuck with these two questions. They just kind of jump out at you. It's as if James is asking the readers by how strong he is, number one, Who made you to judge? And then number two, who really has the power? Who made you to judge? And number two, who really has the power? Now let's take a look again at at verse one. Who made you to judge? He says, in typical James direct fashion, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I want you to notice how he phrases that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Then he says, hold no partiality. To be partial is not noble of the gospel is what he's saying. To demonstrate partiality contradicts the nobility of the gospel message. In fact, I, I, I say it this way in my, in my notes, it's inconsistent with the gospel. Any spirit, any attitude, any perspective that diminishes another person, that devalues another person, that marginalizes another person, that relegates them to any type of subservient perspective or position is inconsistent with the gospel. And when you think about the nature of the gospel, it is the free love, it is, it, is, it, is, it is God's unconditional acceptance, it is a provision of Jesus Christ, and it is the offer of salvation made to all. Then when you think about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's made up of every race, every, every background, every economic branch, and so what he's saying here, to be partial is inconsistent with the gospel. 
A great illustration of that is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You don't have to turn there. That's the story of Paul. And you read that text, uh, Paul confronting Peter, and it was not a quiet conversation. In fact, he says, I confronted him in front of them all. That's what he says. And the whole point there was this. The racism during this time had to do with Jews and Gentiles in the church. And Jewish believers thought they were a tad bit better because obviously they were, they were of the lineage and literal promises of Abraham and they had come to Christ. And so Paul said to Peter, said, Peter, you know, when your Jewish buddies weren't around, you used to hang with, us, you used to hang with the Gentiles. Okay, you, you hung with them. You're glad to be seen with them. You ate with them and this kind of thing. And all of a sudden you're... Your Jewish buddies come around and then you sort of push the rewind button. You don't want to be seen anymore. And that's what the text says. Paul says, I, I, I confronted him to his face. And then there's an interesting line in verse, uh, verse 14. Listen to this line. Paul said that Peter's behavior, now listen to this, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. To separate, marginalize, relegate, and diminish is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So this issue of partiality is not a personal issue. It damages the integrity of the gospel. It is inconsistent. With the gospel. Now, let me say a word about the word partiality. You see it in verse 1, and then he picks it up again in verse 9. Obviously, it's the theme of these two, of these two paragraphs. The word partiality literally means respect of persons. Now, the way it's used here in, in other places, it's used in reference to judging someone based on their outward circumstances and appearances. Now, I want to say a word of correction here. Um, uh, you know, Christians, there are people saying, well, we should never judge. The Bible says, doesn't say that. We should never falsely judge. We misquote Matthew 7. Uh, we shouldn't falsely judge. But we shouldn't judge people based upon outward appearances. Outward appearances. Based upon the color of their skin, based upon the, their, their, their circumstances in life, based upon, you know, how much money they have, where they live, and all that kind of stuff. James is saying that is trivial and superficial, and no one should ever be judged based upon those outward uh, things. And I want to say something in a balancing way, too. We all have friends that we enjoy being around and hanging out with. This is not the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality is deeper than that. It doesn't mean that, you know, just because I prefer to be with some people and I don't hang out with some other people, that doesn't mean that I'm committing the sin of partiality. However, if I discount those people, diminish those people, I'm demeaning toward them in any way, or I project that I think that I'm better than they are, that's the sin of partiality. So you can have preferences without being partial. So this sin of partiality has to do with alienating people and putting them down. Now, I'm going to say this, and sometimes we excuse the sins of the wealthy and prominent. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes we think because somebody has more money or more resources, 
that somehow they, they, get a, they get a pass. They get a pass. You know, I've seen that uh, in our culture. We live in a culture in the West where, you know, we, we like money. I like money. Uh, we, we like stuff. And so subconsciously, if we're not careful, we think that somehow or another, if a person has more money and more visible stuff and they're dominant, that somehow or another they're, they're less immoral. I do not like what we do in this culture. We often equate poverty subconsciously with immorality. Think about that. We sometimes think because somebody doesn't have the money or they live in the inner city or they live, quote, in a ghetto or they're, they don't, they're below the poverty line, that to be below the poverty line, to live in that situation, somehow means that they, they are immoral. And we tend to wink at those, and I, I know a lot of professional athletes and this kind of thing, they make a lot of money, and I got to tell you, I got to tell you, some of the most immoral people I've ever known in my, my, my life have been extraordinarily wealthy. And the only difference between Solomon and the woman caught in adultery is that Solomon had a prominent position. But we typically don't think that way. And so what James is talking about here is that, whoa, 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 let's, let's define our Christianity here. Let's take a look at what really is the essence. And let's not discount or marginalize people and, and, and push them off the scene and, and somehow or another, uh, dare I say it, we erode the gospel by playing these little Games of who's better than who and who doesn't measure up and who doesn't look right and who's more acceptable. And secondly, under this whole banner of who made you the judge, he says in verses two through four through the story, the illustration that he gives, that partiality invalidates the worth of others. I won't reread the story, summarize it. You know, somebody comes into the assembly and, and they've got a lot of bling on. They got, you know, here, here they come. And he says in verse 3, and if you pay attention, that verb pay attention there in the Greek text is stronger. It means to gaze upon. I mean, you're in the church and you're in, all of a sudden you see this person that comes in and they're dressed to the nines and they got it going on. And you kind of like say to yourself, here comes money. Oh, oh boy. And all of a sudden your attention is drawn to this individual. And he says, you go and give them special seating. You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. You give them the VIP treatment. You give them the bigger mug there out there in the commons. And you, 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 you know, you treat them just right and this kind of, but the poor guy, the shabby dude, you say, get out of that seat. Standing room only. Or go, go, go sit on the floor. And just because of the way he looks, he's looked over and left out. But because of the way this dude looks, he's embraced and accepted. Do you know what it feels like to be looked over and left out? To be passed over? 
I'm going to tell you this story. I shared this some years ago when we did the Justice Series, but I want to come back and share this story with you. When I was 19 years old, I sang in a college chorale. And I went to a Christian college, and over the spring break, uh, typically we toured and this kind of thing, churches. And so we were uh, uh, at a, in a city here in the southeast, and there were only two African-American members of, of, the, of the chorale, uh, Kathy Banks and myself. What we, d- we used to do every evening, though, after we sang at these churches, this is the way we did it, uh, the choir members... The crowd members stood up front after the service was over, and your host, where you would be spending the night, would come up to you, and you would go. Uh, I think I was hurt more by this than any other thing that uh, I had experienced up until that point. So here we were, standing up front, and all of the choir members started leaving and went with their host couples. They all left. And it was just down to me and Kathy. And finally, Kathy went with somebody, and I was still standing there. Then after a long time, some guys with their youth department came and got me. I wasn't staying in a home that evening. I had to stay at a camp outside of this area here. Well, later on, when we got back on campus, I discovered that... um, the chorale director knew about this church having a problem with folks who weren't like them and had let him know up front that, you know, we'd have to make other arrangements for me and Kathy to stay. I wasn't sharp as pencil in the box, but right on the spot, I resigned from the chorale. I, I share that with you. I'm, I'm not looking for any sympathy or this kind of thing like that, but I share that with you. Because I think all of us need to keep in mind, when we're tempted to marginalize someone, when we're tempted to, to, to discount them, we're, we're tempted to say, oh, you're not, you're not a part of who we are, remember how you felt. Remember how you felt. That wasn't on a racial issue. It could have been some other issue, but remember how you felt. And that's the picture that James is painting here. How would you feel if somebody kicked you out of your seat? How would you feel if you told to go stand over there in the corner? How would you feel? Oh, you know what? 10% of what he makes is a lot of money. How would you feel? How would you feel about that? So James is pressing in. Who really has the power is the second big question. Who really has the power? Listen to what James says here. He says, I want you to consider something. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He's talking about the blessing of the poor. And don't read this as sour grapes, okay? Yeah, you could read it that way. You could go, oh, James is just trying to placate them, you know, and help them to feel good about themselves and say, hey, look, you're going to get stuff better. No, that's not what he's saying. When you really look at the text, it's not a case of sour grapes that he's talking about. You know, you can't have it, so let's figure out a good reason why you are where you are. No, that's not what he's saying here. Pay close attention here. You know, Richard Foster, the title of his book, Money, Sex, and Power, he postulates those are the three things that vie for the worship of God. Throughout the Gospels, 
Throughout the Gospels, there's the warning of a power of money. I'll give you an illustration in a few moments, but there's this warning. The Bible doesn't put down money. Bible doesn't put down riches. Doesn't put that down at all. Doesn't put it down, but it warns soberly. Be very careful because there's the power associated with resources can pry your heart away from the worship of God. And so he says here, the, the poor, the poor, they don't, they don't have that distraction. That's what he's saying here. The poor are free to trust. They know that all they have is God. That's what he's saying in verse 5. They know that. By the way, did, and I mentioned this in, in one of our stewardship series, you, you do know, you do know, you do know that the people who give the highest percentage of their resources to charity and to the church, you do know who they are, don't you? They're the working class poor. By far, by far, they give the most, by far. And I think it's because of this principle here. They know what it's like to trust God. They know what it's like to go without. They don't have that barrier that they have to cross. And so they're free for that Pursuit. Again, he's not mentioning that money is evil or wrong. Don't, don't read it that way. But he does underscore in verses 6 and 7 the struggle of the rich. Here's the struggle of the rich. Uh, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which... You were called. You're saying, Crawford, he doesn't have too many good things to say about rich folks, does he? Uh, Again, everything needs to be seen in its broader context. He's talking about wealthy people who discount and marginalize folks. He's talking about the sin of partiality. And by the way, I know of many wealthy people who are very generous in their hearts, and they don't do this at all, and that's the reason why God's given it to them. Let me say something else by means of parentheses. There are many poor people who so envy the wealthy and the rich that they castigate them. I was at a movie not long ago. My wife and I saw this movie. It was a great line in this movie. Part of the plot had to do with this guy from the inner city who had made it big and, and made it big in the business world. Hadn't changed at all. Loved people and stuff. The guys that he grew up with said that, well, money changed you. He said, no, money didn't change me. It changed you. Because I got it, now, you, now you're projecting on me, somehow or another, what you desire. So there is a balance to all of these things, is what I'm saying here. But what James is narrowing down is that if you don't deal with the power of money appropriately, what's going to happen is that, number one, you're going to dishonor people. That's verse 6a. Number two, you're going to oppress people. And number three, you're going to blaspheme people. That's the idea of self-worship. How do you get self-worship from blaspheme? It's a little bit of a stretch, but I think it comes out of the context. The blasphemy means to curse and and to deal lightly with Jesus Christ. But I also think that the reason why people blaspheme is because in this context, they're self-sufficient and self-assured. You think your resource is their God. In Luke chapter 18, verses 23 through 25, there's that sad story, the sad conclusion of that story about the rich young ruler. What a sad story. 
this young man comes and asks Jesus the right question. He gets the right answer. Jesus told him to sell all that you have. Now, you got to understand, even reading that story, you got to read that parable, very, that story very closely. He tells him to sell all that he has. And the reason why he tells him to sell all that he has is not that he was knocking his money, but the money had control over him. He worshipped it. And in his case, he said, you're going to have to get rid of it because it is something that you worship. And the man was very sad, and he goes to walk away. And Jesus makes this enormous statement, this difficult statement. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. But you don't stop right there. If you stop right there, you go, camels can't go through an eye of a needle. So they can't be saved. But then he responded, with God, all things are possible. The point of that story and the point that James is making right right here is that wealth and resources, if you don't deal with them properly, they can become an idol in your life. And you worship it rather than using the resources the way in which God intended There is this bad, ugly, persistent habit. But secondly, he says there is a new liberating law. How do we deal with all of this? Well, the second paragraph tells us. James says in so many words, and I want to just underscore this before I walk through it. There are two big lessons. He says, James is basically saying, look, love is right and favoritism is sin. Okay? So now he tells us. What's the cure for this sinful habit? How do I, how do I not marginalize people? How, how do I not discount them? How do, how do I move toward what is the truth? He says in verse, um, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures. This new liberating law, he says, first of all, we are free to love. Free to love, free to love. He uses the expression royal law in verse 8, but if you look down at verse 12, he also uses the expression the law of liberty. I want to suggest to you in context that the law of liberty is the description of the law of love. It is basically the same thing. It is the same thing. We have a new law, a new law that, 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 that forms a, a, a level ground with everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus And this is what we're governed by. This is that new law, the royal law. What is it? He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. And that that, that whole statement from Leviticus 19.18 was reaffirmed by Jesus in Matthew 22 verse 39. He calls it the royal love. It's as if he's he's shouting to them, you you should never, ever, ever, ever treat anybody any other than the way that you want to be treated. There should never be anybody in your life that you treat in such a way that you would not want to be treated. 
Money doesn't make any difference. The color of your skin doesn't make any difference. Language barriers doesn't make any difference. Education doesn't make any difference. None of that stuff makes any difference. Believers in Jesus Christ, the real mark of our community, the real mark that we have been placed into the body of Christ is that we do not lead with class distinctions. We do not lead with economic distinction. We don't lead with any of these trappings. It is called the royal law. Why? Because the king of kings and lord of lords said that this would mark his church. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this love is not theoretical, it is real, it is transformative. And we're to care deeply for one, one another. It is the royal law. Perhaps James also has in mind when he quotes that, you know, when you read the book of James and you realize that he was a half-brother of Jesus, he was one of the disciples, although the text doesn't say it, all these stories from the Gospels make you wonder if he's not referring to that. I, I wonder if he's not referring to this conversation and confrontation that Jesus had with this expert in the Mosaic Law back in Luke chapter 10 when this guy was trying to show up Jesus when he asked him the question, who is my neighbor? who is my neighbor, and Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, you have this expert in the Mosaic Law, and Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. If you know anything about the Samaritans and the Jews, you understand that uh, uh, Jesus was putting the cards on the table because, you know, he was really speaking to the racism that gripped the Jews. They hated the Samaritans. Maybe that's what John has in mind, and Jesus' story was really a story about partiality and about the ability to love beyond your cultural distinctions. Well, James now begins to appear, appeal to the law. And he says that, I want, I, want, I want you to understand something here, that there's another law that we used to live under. And that law was impossible to keep. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now, there's a connection here. But he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Uh, he's saying a couple of things here. First of all, I think what he's reminding them of is that he wants to make sure that his readers just, you know, don't dismiss their prejudices and pre preferential attitudes as trivial faults. I think that's what he's saying here. Wait, 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 wait. This is a big deal here. So don't, don't, just, don't just say, well, you know, everybody does it. Don't just say, well, you know, everybody. I mean, I, yeah, I know it's wrong, but, you know, we all do that. So now don't, don't trivialize this thing. This is a big deal. But I think the second thing that he's saying by appealing to the law is that he's underscoring everything that they knew, that the purpose of the law was to show that, that we didn't measure up. If, if, you, if you violated one of the Ten Commandments, it's just part of the, the moral law right there. No, never mind the ceremonial stuff. Obviously, that was done away with Christ. But you, you, you just violate one. 
You're guilty of the whole thing. You're guilty of it all. You know, Galatians 3.24, Paul tells us that the law was a guardian that led us to Christ. Well, what, are you, what are you saying here? I think the message is pretty clear. And the implication is pretty clear. He's saying to them, the purpose of the law was to show that we don't measure up. Okay, so why would, uh, why would we embrace an attitude that says others don't measure up? Why would you do that? You couldn't keep the law. You couldn't keep it. So Crawford, why, why are you going to dismiss somebody because they don't measure up to your likes and preferences? They talk different. They look different. They, gosh, they don't live in a subdivision. That's his point. That, that, that's his point. That's precisely his point. You couldn't measure up to the law. You needed Jesus who fulfilled the law. Crawford, what gives you the right to go around and say, you're in, you're out, 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 you're good, you're bad. And then finally, he says, mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs. Verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's actually reiterating what he said up in verse 6, the royal law. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Treat your neighbor as yourself. I want that to govern you. He says, okay, okay, so let me say it again. What you say and how you act should be consistent with that law of liberty. Should be consistent. And so that the gospel, the gospel is not just this way, me and Jesus. The gospel, the gospel is this way and this way. It's me being reconciled with God, but it's my life telling the truth about that reconciliation. Just as God has received me and accepted me as a follower of Jesus Christ, I must receive and accept other people. But then the first part of verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. It's the law of sw- uh, uh, sowing and reaping. It's like this warning here, okay, I, I, I really want you to get this. If you do this now, you do understand you're going to reap what you sow. If you mistreat other people, then perhaps your children will be mistreated. If you marginalize and discount others based upon some arrogant posturing standards or preferences or whatever, Okay, be careful with that because it's going to come washing back on you. There is this principle. But I love the last line. These four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is he saying there? God in his mercy has judged his son for our sin. He has not judged us so that we can judge others. And I think that's the answer right there. 
Ultimately, the real cure for the sin of partiality is to take a look at what God has forgiven me of and how merciful he's been to me. How good God has been to me. How he's washed my sins away. How he's blessed me. How grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. How I'm accepted by him and loved by him. I don't deserve it. I don't merit it. And what what James is saying, please don't withhold from others what God has so freely given to you. Don't, Don't do that. Don't do that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me give you about three suggestions. Uh, I want you to do what I've been doing. I've been praying over this as I've prepared this and the Lord's been bringing to my mind some areas. One is look at your heart and ask the Lord to show you if you exclude or dismiss people. Take a look at your heart and ask, do I do that? Do I do that? Do I write people off? Secondly, don't allow the culture or your peers to determine how you treat people. You know, this is the most subtle of all these things. Let's face it. We, we, live, we live in a very success conscious area. And you are, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But you've got to be kind of careful. You, you, the culture uh, can kind of like get us making premature conclusions about the personhood of other people. And we need to take a look at that. And parents, if you have kids between 11 and 18 years old, I want to encourage you, stay very close to them on this peer pressure stuff that, that drives them towards cliques and who's in and who out, who's out. I think the worst form of bullying in the world has to do with excluding people. And it's very easy to get sucked into that, like attracting like, and before you know it, you're buying all these crazy things that we got to be careful of. And then thirdly, ask God to help you to see people through the eyes of Jesus. Through the eyes of Jesus. It is the cross That is the standard. And my sin may not be the sin of someone who's sleeping on the streets and, you know, drugged out and what have you. But nevertheless, my sin did send the Savior to the cross. Let's stand together. Oh God, we pray that Fellowship Bible Church will always be a place where people feel the authentic love of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hearts will always move toward you and that we will not allow marginalization, uh, the arrogance of, of, of thinking that in some way we have somehow attained a place that we're better than other people. Father, we pray that you will keep us 
Keep us in the center, Lord, of of understanding that Jesus died for all of us and his love must be extended through us to all people. Show us what that means and show us, oh God, what it means to live out the integrity of the gospel. And I pray that people will, will be drawn to Jesus not simply by the words that we say, but by the royal law of liberty, the law of love, that they'll see that reality in us. Dismiss us from this place, but may we walk in your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings.